Hello, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I'm coming to you from the Gulf of Corinth. And that is the sound of summer here. I will be taking my usual two-month summer break after posting this episode, mostly to prepare classes for the fall, so I will see you again in September. I hope that in October, the big history will come out. I just submitted the last batch of corrections to proofs and cover design and so forth, so it should all be ready to go. Now, one of the claims that I make in the introduction to that book is that the East Roman state lasted, you know, roughly 1,200 years. This is about a fifth of all recorded human history. That's the interesting kind of claim that one likes to be able to make in an introduction. Puts things into perspectives, gives you a sense of scale. But when I think about time scales on that way, there's always the example of Egypt, which ancient Egypt's is maybe like three-fifths of all known human history. I mean, stupid Egypt, all tucked away down there and didn't have to deal with, you know, Goths and Huns and Persians and Avars and Arabs and Bulgars and Crusaders. I mean, it did have to do with the Persians once or twice. It did not go well. Okay, so Egypt is a relative outlier in terms of the, you know, longevity of a fairly coherent and consistent culture uh, that lasted for a very long time with an awareness of its own past and being able to access records and traditions from its own very distant past. Its hieroglyphic script, which we will be talking about in this episode, lasted in use for over 3,000 years lasted so long that even as it was being used for contemporary purposes, it went through phases of its own reinvention, uh, where it was looking back to previous eras of Egyptian history and writing, which was on display outside of temples and carved on all kinds of monuments. It is an unusually long scale on which to observe the evolution of a script. Now, the other fascinating thing about hieroglyphic script is that it came to an end, that is in terms of its active use by people who could read and write it, at the very beginning of our period. So the last users and writers of Egyptian hieroglyphics were East Roman citizens. They were in the 4th century, possibly early 5th. And so in this period, we observe the remarkable coexistence of people who are drawing on this ancient tradition from a position of knowledge of it, and these are, by this point, almost certainly all uh, priests in the pagan priesthoods of late antique Egypt. And at the same time, other Egyptians interacting with the ancient traditions of Egypt who are not very familiar with how the script works with what all the signs indicating with the religious lore of the country's past. And these are the early Christians of Egypt, who of course were surrounded by this ancient pharaonic culture in the monuments and the tombs, um, some of whom um, lived amidst these ancient monuments and ruins, some hermits, 
sometimes made their abodes in these pharaonic tombs. Anyway, it is altogether a fascinating period of the end of a very long tradition and its reception by a new religious culture that was taking over at that time. And it provides me with one of these anchor points that I find so interesting in thinking about the longevity of East Roman culture is that its beginnings are rooted so far in antiquity that in addition to the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman and the biblical Hebrew um, uh, roots of its culture, there are also people at that time who are actively engaged with the hieroglyphic tradition of ancient Egypt before knowledge of that script disappeared entirely uh, among mankind. My guest today is Jennifer Westerfeld of the University of Louisville, and she has written a fascinating and really fun book on precisely this period and this kind of interaction. It's called Egyptian Hieroglyphs in the Late Antique Imagination, and it has the extraordinary and want to say unique, but certainly rare virtue of combining a rigorous training in ancient Egyptian language and literature and culture, and also the ability to read hieroglyphic and hieratic and all the other scripts that were used to write Egyptian. We will be talking about those in the episode. But is also a scholar of late antiquity, and so is able to talk about how Pagans and Christians in this period interacted with the remains of ancient pharaonic culture um, that was all around them. The book actually has a concise guide to understanding how hieroglyphics work. Um, and it also <laughs> this fascinating little moment where um, I could see how the modern letter M uh, from Greek, from Phoenician, uh, ultimately derived from an Egyptian hieroglyphic way of rendering the, the term water from three squiggles that eventually end up uh, over time taking the form of the letter M. Um, I, I had always read about the genealogy of these scripts and how they were related, but I, had not, I didn't know of a case where you could just see so clearly how an ancient Egyptian um, sign end, ends up you know, what were you still using today? It's quite extraordinary. And she also talks about the one ancient writer, I mean by that uh, Greek or Roman, who comes the closest to being right about high, how hieroglyphics work. This is Clement of Alexandria, who is a Christian writer around 200 AD. And she analyzes his language for describing how hieroglyphics work. And I think very convincingly argues that he was almost certainly in contact with someone who, who knew how to read them and could explain these terms, but the difficulty is in trying to understand um, you know, the Greek vocabulary for rendering different kinds of signs within a script that is not entirely alphabetic. Okay, I've said enough. In the discussion that follows, Jennifer will explain uh, the, so the history of Egyptian language and scripts and how we get to the point of late antiquity. I definitely encourage you to read her book for more details. It's very accessible, very uh, in-depth and well-researched. In the meantime, um, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting this episode, and I will see you all again in September. Uh, take care in the meantime. Have a good summer. And here's my conversation with Jennifer.
Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're talking about an issue that really crosses a number of different fields. And so some of our audience might not be familiar with the history of the Egyptian language and the different scripts that have been used to write it. So could you just give us a quick rundown of the four scripts uh, <laughs> that were used to write the ancient Egyptian language? And so th th these are sort of called hieroglyphic, hieratic, demotic, and coptic. And just tell us when these were used and you know, what different functions they served so that we have a big picture. Yeah, absolutely. So when you say ancient Egyptian writing, the mental image that most people are going to have is of the hieroglyphic script. So this is the script that consists of lots of little pictures of animals and birds, parts of the human body, all kinds of different objects. And these can be more or less elaborate depending on the circumstances. So all you really need to convey the meaning is the outline of the shape. But we have some fantastic examples where they'll go in and say, if it's a bird hieroglyph, they'll draw in all the little feathers and the beak and the talons and everything, uh, really <clears throat> emphasizing that these are images of things. Mm. And these can also be written in multiple different orientations. So you can write them from right to left, from left to right, or in columns uh, up and down, which means that they're great for use in things like architectural settings. This is a script that has a really amazing decorative as well as communicative potential. And that's, that's something the Egyptians were super aware of and that they really exploited. So hieroglyphs um, develop in the pre-dynastic and early dynastic periods. Uh, we're talking between around 3200 and 2700 BCE, approximately. And some of our earliest evidence comes from the site of Abydos in Upper Egypt. And that's really significant because Abydos is one of the sites where the institution of ancient Egyptian kingship first came into being. And so from very, very early on, there is this intimate connection between the use of writing in Egypt and the institution of kingship. And that's something that our later classical and late antique authors are going to be aware of. That's something they, that they will talk about. And so hieroglyphs are primarily going to be used in monumental contexts, carved in stone in places like uh, tombs and temples, uh, we find them on stele, on statues, on funerary items like coffins, basically places where that aesthetic value can really make an impact. Mm -hmm. They are decorative, they're fabulous, they're really cool, but yeah. they are not quick or efficient to write. And so pretty early on, already by around 2700 BCE, there was a more cursive script um, that we now call hieratic, that was already in development. And this continues to kind of co-evolve with hieroglyphs. And so in a, a modern parallel, we can think about the distinction between print and cursive. <clears throat> and so in hieratic, the hieroglyphic sign forms are simplified, they're stylized, but they're usually still remarkable, or still uh, recognizable, excuse me. So mm. a bird sign in hieroglyphs still looks kind of like a bird in hieratic. Um, this script is usually written in ink on uh, either papyrus or on ostraca, so primarily in non-monumental contexts. And 
it was used for all sorts of functions. Um, some of our uh, earliest uh, documents on papyrus actually record um, the the labor that went into quarrying the stone for Khufu's Great Pyramid. Um, those are in hieratic. <clears throat> and so we have everything from letters to government documents to literary and religious texts. And this script is used alongside hieroglyphs, uh, but again, in sort of different functional domains uh, into the Roman period, uh, falls out of use sometime in the second century CE. So if these are different um, forms of clothing, uh, hieroglyphic is like your tuxedo um, or like tailored business suit that you wear on really formal occasions, <laughs> uh, right? Whereas hieratic is mm -hmm. like your business casual that you use for more, you know, kind of day-to-day -day administrative purposes. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love that. I'm going to start using that in my, right. uh, in my classes. Oh, it's it's going to go down the scale from here. So, <laughs> um, so, so what are the other two? When does demotic come along? So Demotic comes along in around the mid 7th century BCE, uh, develops out of hieratic, uh, and it's going to be used into the Roman period as well. So it is even more cursive um, than hieratic. <clears throat> so the, the hieroglyphic sign forms are harder to recognize, and there's um, more potential for signs to be ligatured together. Uh, so <clears throat> you can go pretty easily from a hieratic text uh, to to figure out what the hieroglyphic sort of prototype of that might have been. It's a lot harder to do that for Demotic. Uh, and Demotic has a closer connection to the spoken language. Um, <clears throat> so by the late period, by around the mid-7th century BC, um, hieroglyphs are writing a form of the language grammatically and orthographically that hadn't been spoken for like a thousand years. Um, Demotic is much closer to the, the language that was being spoken at that time. And so Demotic is going to take over a lot of the um, functions of hieratic, uh, especially a lot of the secular functions. So administrative documents, tax records, uh, stuff like that, um, which is why in Egyptian, it's referred to as the writing that you use for documents. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Right. So the names of all of these different scripts are Greek. Mm hmm. Why is that? Yeah, so the names are Greek. Uh, the names uh, really derive from the period when uh, Greek historians and geographers, guys like Herodotus, were visiting Egypt. They observed these writing systems and gave them the terminology that we now employ. Uh, so these do not always align with the Egyptians' own terminology. Mm. <clears throat> but they're we're stuck with them basically. Yeah. And then in late antiquity, we have the emergence of Coptic script, right? So this is just an adaptation of Greek. Well, <laughs> go on. Um, so yeah, so Coptic is particularly interesting. Um, unlike the earlier scripts, it is alphabetic, uh, which gives us advantages in terms of understanding the variation between regional dialects, for example, uh, that we can't always do in, in the earlier scripts. So it uses the Greek alphabet um, plus a handful of signs derived from the Demotic script uh, to express sounds that, that aren't used in Greek. And it originates uh, actually with experiments in writing the Egyptian language phonetically that were probably already going on in the Hellenistic period. And this experimentation was taking place in the context of producing ritual texts where 
you know, if you're going to summon a demon or something, you got to make sure that your pronunciation is correct. And the earlier scripts don't indicate vowel sounds. Whereas you can do that in Greek or with the Greek alphabet. And so we get this, this experimentation with writing Egyptian phonetically. And this becomes codified by around the third century CE. And it's going to become the dominant means of writing the spoken Egyptian language. And so each version, yeah, so each of these scripts is sort of progressively easier to learn, like in a sense, accessible to more people, right? Is that the case? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm biased in favor of Coptic, certainly, because that's, that's my main research language. Um, And I certainly found it easier to learn than the earlier scripts. Demotic has a bad reputation, uh, because it is so, it is so cursive, the signs are so ligature. I mean, visually, I can hear Egyptologists howling in outrage if I make this comparison. But you know, if you think about the distinction between print and cursive and shorthand, mm. demotic looks more like shorthand. Mm. So um, if you're if you're literate, if you're trained, yes, it's potentially easier. Mm. Uh, grammatically, it's it's relatively straightforward. Um, the script can be really tricky, and there's a lot of variation from one scribe to the next uh, in terms of what their what their handwriting looks like. Got it. Okay. And now, so you're a trained Egyptologist, right? Like mm-hmm. your book is on late antiquity and you work with a lot of Christian material, but you, your background training is in like the deep, right? Prehistory, even of Egypt, you do hieroglyphic and all of that, right? Yeah. Um, so um, I'm, I'm trained as a philologist uh, in a, in a program that really uh, emphasized sort of language acquisition as the, <laughs> the yeah. fundamental thing that you have to do. Um, so, so yeah, so I went through the, the the gamut of courses from intro middle egyptian uh through to the later stages of coptic and demotic yeah so the hieroglyphic script with which most of the audience will be visually familiar with right um so this continues in use down to roughly 400 a.d uh, though diminishing um in 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 its frequency and so it overlapped with all of these others could you tell us a little bit about how the different signs were like what categories of signs exist in hieroglyphic? Uh, very broadly speaking. Now I should say that I've been present at some pretty heated debates verging on fights about whether a script is alphabetic or syllabic. <laughs> okay. Um, so I I understand that for some people there's a lot at stake here, but um, hieroglyphic seems to have signs that do all kinds of different things. Uh, so just give us a quick rundown of what those are. Yeah, this is a, a super important question because there is this crucial misunderstanding of the hieroglyphic script that comes into the conversation already in antiquity um, that says hieroglyphs are purely symbolic. They are disconnected from the spoken Egyptian language. And that idea is incredibly tenacious, right? It's going to shape discussions about hieroglyphs through late antiquity into the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. You know, mm. it, it takes until the <laughs> the early 19th century uh, for decipherment to actually take place, partly because people were so stuck on this idea. 
and it's it's not correct. So how does it work? There are roughly between 700 and 800 signs in the repertoire of the classical Middle Egyptian phase. Okay, I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. And it's like when you're starting to learn intro Middle Egyptian, it is incredibly daunting. Somewhere I have like endless file boxes of flashcards in my horrible hieroglyphic handwriting trying (laughs) to make sense of all this. And so those signs fall into three major categories. So on the one hand, you have ideograms or logograms, which can represent a single word. Phonograms, which represent consonants. And um, these can be either alphabetic, so representing a single consonant, biliteral, representing two consonants, triliteral, representing three consonants. And then in addition to that, you have what are called determinatives, which don't uh, convey a phonetic value, but that are used to say, hey, you've reached the end of a word, uh, and that tell you a little bit about the part of speech that you're looking at. And that's especially important because typically um, Egyptian is written without uh, word breaks and generally without punctuation. So you've just got a whole row of these signs running together, and the determinatives help to... um, make the the distinctions between words clear. So these three types of signs combine to form larger syntactic units. And where it gets complicated, or where it gets more complicated, because it's already complicated, where it gets more complicated is the fact that some signs can be ideograms in one context, phonograms in another context, and determinatives in a third context. Yikes. (laughs) So, uh, if you want, we can look at an example. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, well, let useful? me give you my English version. Yeah. So, so we have the word bat, right? And you could have a determinative that indicates wings. So it's a flying rodent. And you can have a determinative that's a little ball that indicates a bat for hitting a ball. Or a little man, and that's Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Sorry, that's based on a joke in Plato, not Batman. Uh, but uh, do you have an example that? Yeah, you sure. want to run? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, you'll have to see if it if it makes sense. Okay. You know, without actually being able to to see it, um, <clears throat> but yeah, we can look at an example of three words that all begin with the same hieroglyph. So, in Egyptian, the the word for house is pear, and this is written with an ideogram in the form of a rectangle with a small opening on the bottom. Uh, So basically it's the floor plan of a basic one room house, super Mm. simple. And this is followed by a single vertical stroke that indicates the preceding sign represents an entire word. That same house sign hieroglyph can also be used as a phonogram representing the consonants P plus R and In that capacity, it's used to write words that have nothing to do with houses, but that that include that same pair of consonants. So, for example, the verb to go out, uh, pronounced peri, is written with the house sign, followed by an alphabetic sign representing the consonant R. Mm. And that tells you, again, how to read the preceding sign. It says, read the house sign phonetically. 
And then this is followed by a determinative in the form of a pair of walking legs. Super cute. It's one of my favorites. And that tells you that this is a verb of motion. Third example, the word winter, parrot, starts out the same way with the house sign hieroglyph, followed by two alphabetic signs, in this case, R and T. And then you swap out the walking legs determinative for a determinative in the form of a sun disk. And that tells you you're now dealing with a word representing a season or a period of time. Right. So this script lasted for three millennia in use. What were the factors that led to its decline? You talk about these a little bit in the book. Yeah, this is a a huge and really important question. Uh, The last datable hieroglyphic inscription uh, comes from the year 394 CE. Uh, It's a devotional graffito uh, from the Temple of Isis at Philae written by a local priest. Um, But that is kind of an outlier uh, in, in how late it is. In practice, knowledge of the script was already waning probably by the late second and certainly in, into the third century CE. And for listeners who are especially interested in this issue, um, I would point them to a, a recent book uh, that came out in 2021. Uh, this is Edward Love's Script Switching in Roman Egypt, which is a really granular study of script use at four different temple sites in Roman Egypt. And one of the things that uh, he emphasizes is the regional variation in script use and obsolescence. So hieroglyphs, in some cases, are used for longer at certain sites than at others. Same with with, um, hieratic and demotic. So in that sense, it's not coincidental that our last hieroglyphic inscription comes from Philae. This was the last of the major Egyptian temples to close. It stays open a lot longer. Uh, The priesthood stays active for longer. So, so yeah, definitely folks that are interested should check out okay. uh, Love's book. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that we can think about is really the confluence of factors that lead to the, the demise of this script. One of these is the fact that by the Roman period, there's just less demand for the use of hieroglyphs. Their Their functionality was increasingly restricted. Um, you know, as we've talked about, one of the major functions for hieroglyphs in all periods was uh, monumental temple inscriptions, and less of those are being produced, right? Um, David Klotz has looked at uh, Roman hieroglyphic inscriptions, particularly at Thebes, and one of the things that he's found is that there's kind of a last major boom in, if you want to call it that, in temple renovation or decoration in Egypt, uh, in the reign of Antoninus Pius, uh, so sort of mid-2nd century CE. And then there's a pretty sharp drop-off after that. And we can think about all the different factors, right? The Antonine Plague, uh, environmental issues, including uh, there's a series of uh, very low Niles. Uh, so the mm. there's a drought in the late 2nd century um, that affects the agricultural productivity. And then obviously getting into the 3rd century, all sorts of political and economic struggles. So all of these are going to impact the Roman government's spending on the Egyptian temples. Um, they're not going to be offering as much financial support to carve new inscriptions or to um, refurbish old ones. So that's part of the puzzle. <clears throat> We've also got 
you know, the factors that we've we've talked about, the fact that this was a highly complex linguistic environment. You've got Greek and Egyptian being used uh, side by side. You've got multiple scripts in use. You've got the gap between mm-hmm. the spoken and the written language. And literacy overall was very limited. Um, it always had been. Uh, there is an enormous amount of debate when people try to put any specific number on the rate of of literacy for any period. So I'm not even going to try and do that, but we'll just say literacy, very, very low. And literacy in hieroglyphs would have been even lower. And it would have been effectively, by the Roman period, probably earlier as well, restricted to members of the Egyptian priesthood and really to a subset within that group. This is sort of advanced level training for Egyptian priests. Um, So very, very few people uh, would have had access to this knowledge in any case. And one of the things that Love talks about in particular is the population pressures on that community of priests. Uh, Just as the Roman financial support for the temples was decreasing, the priestly population was shrinking at that same time. And uh, this leads to what Love calls a breakdown in the intergenerational transmission of literacy. Uh, So basically, you just don't have a critical mass of individuals who are literate, uh, who are able to pass that knowledge down to the next generation. So really, you've got kind of a perfect storm, um, rather than any single factor uh, contributing to the the obsolescence, both of hieroglyphs and also of the other scripts as well, um, probably a little bit later. Right. This question does interest me because there are a number of things that sort of gradually peter out and go extinct during this period that we now don't want to think about as a period of so quote decline of anything. But nevertheless, things like think of uh, the ancient Greek athletic games, right? Mm. Or in fact, the, the whole tradition of setting up inscriptions in anywhere in the Roman Empire kind of also kind of peters. It doesn't peter out, but it, it definitely declines compared to previous eras. And Lots of other things. And yeah, I'm always fascinated whether there are any common factors behind all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the script retains its mystique and its prestige. And so if you can't have real hieroglyphic inscriptions, you might have you might <laughs> make some up. So what is mm-hmm. a pseudo hieroglyphic inscription? This is a really fascinating phenomenon that we see. Uh, in particular, in the Greco-Roman period, there are earlier examples. Uh, there's there's a great corpus of uh, pseudo-hieroglyphic inscriptions from Byblos, from the Middle Bronze Age. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but but yeah, we have a lot of these uh, in Greco-Roman Egypt. And my understanding of this draws pretty heavily on an article by Alexandra von Liefen uh, from 2009. And she goes through and tries to kind of classify these pseudo-hieroglyphic inscriptions. So the first category are things that look like real hieroglyphs, but don't make sense. So either the signs themselves are not real, uh, or they can't be read as continuous text. And so I've actually got an example of one of these hanging over my desk right now. Uh, My grandmother was uh, an amateur artist, and she was really interested in ancient Egyptian art. And so she created this Egyptian scene with completely fake hieroglyphic inscriptions in it. And the hieroglyphs are genuine. I mean, they they reflect actual signs in the hieroglyphic repertoire, but they, they don't combine in any meaningful way. 
And so this is this is something that we see already uh, in antiquity. Uh, von Liefen's second category is um, where it's kind of in descending array of quality. So her next category is uh, squiggles or scratches that are arranged in a kind of uniform way so that they look like text. But I mean, that's really kind of minimal effort. And then goes downhill from there where we see um, registers or frames that are used to sort of visually mark spaces where hieroglyphic text should go, but they're left blank. And this is something that we see uh, sometimes on um, funerary objects. So uh, a really nice example is a shroud from the early early Roman period, first century or early second century, um, now in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, it uh, belonged to a woman named Tasheret Wejahor. And the lower part of the shroud has a bunch of scenes of Egyptian deities. So, you know, similar to what you would find in earlier coffins or mummy cases. And they included vertical registers where text would normally go, but they're blank. So this is where you would find the labels identifying Isis and Nephthys and Anubis and so forth. No text at all. Um, but you know, I mean, people would have recognized this. They would know what should go there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so they're able to kind of fill in that blank uh, yeah. as they go. Did she go to uh, tattoo parlors? Because <laughs> I imagine you could write a whole other article on pseudo hieroglyphic inscriptions that people put on their body. Oh, oh, okay. So question. So let's bring it to Constantinople. The Theodosian obelisk base, that has an actual Egyptian obelisk on it with real hieroglyphics. Mm -hmm. But down on the base, you know, they 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 carve those images of the uh, obelisk being raised in mm -hmm. Constantinople. And, the, and there are two little images of the obelisk and they have little mini hieroglyphs carved on them. And so these are bonafide late Roman imitation hieroglyphics. And I think they're too worn to read, to correct me if I'm wrong. But someone proposed that the, that the text that's on the obelisk that's lying on its side says the gods. And, and because this was put up by two pagan officials in the reign of Theodosius, it, was, it could be like a little covert. They're getting like their little, I don't know, pagan reference to that but or can those not really be read or oh i i love that um i am not super familiar with the theodosian obelisk so i'm gonna have to look at that because that's fantastic yes uh i think you'll have to go find some old photos of it mm. because it's now sort of very worn but i think i found some I, I, i'll send them to you later oh cool what about the so on the entrance of the uh, the Oriental Institute, formerly so-called, right? So there's that the, the scene where there's an Egyptian guy handing a sort of Western-looking guy, or he's mm -hmm. holding this hieroglyph. Is that pseudo-hieroglyphic or is it real? That is actually real, I think. Okay. Um, there's somebody, I, I am ashamed of myself because I, I just showed this in one of my classes this past semester, um, and someone who worked, I think, who worked at the OI, uh, wrote this really fascinating blog post about the iconography of that piece. Yes. And I think I think that is an inscription from Sahure, uh, from oh, okay. Old Kingdom. 
Okay, so I, just, I could be just, I could be completely misremembering that, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I, I do believe it it's genuine. Some, it was supposed to say something like knowledge or whatever that that, <laughs> that the ancient Near East is passing on to mm -hmm. like, quote the West or whatever. Um, okay, uh, yes. Yeah, so the audience, look around you. You're probably you've got all these pseudo hieroglyphic or real hieroglyphic inscriptions. Um, so let's talk about the the sort of cultural valence of hieroglyphics, especially in the Roman Empire and late antiquity. So obviously, ancient writers talked about Egypt as this land of deep antiquity with this, you know, tradition of wisdom. Um, and early Christians inherited this idea. So what did early Christians sort of like into the patristic period or whatever, what did they, how did they use this idea of Egyptian antiquity and Egyptian wisdom? And, and how was it problematic for them? Because you call it a double-edged sword in your book. Yeah, something that I realized pretty early on in this project was that I wasn't going to be able to look at late antique ideas about hieroglyphs or about Egyptian writing in isolation, because the late antique authors were fundamentally in conversation with the earlier classical discourse on Egypt. Mm. And so what I decided to do was to try and start following a few themes across the centuries and from one source to another. And in doing that, a few ideas kept cropping up that were especially persistent. So these are the idea that hieroglyphs were invented by the gods, the idea that they are extraordinarily ancient, and the idea that they're used to write historical texts, uh, especially royal records. And uh, so, for example, we can think about um, Plato, who talks about the Athenian lawgiver Solon sitting at the feet of the priests in Heliopolis. And the priests basically tell him, we are better record keepers than you Greeks. Um, we are the guardians of world history. We're, we're writing this stuff down in our temples. And so this emphasis on Egyptian priests as record keepers is going to be echoed um, throughout the centuries. Diodorus talks about this in the first century, first century BCE. Josephus talks about it in the first century uh, AD, and others are going to pick up this, this theme. And so these are ideas that that do align with Egyptian beliefs and practices, right? So the Egyptians believed that writing had been invented or created by the god Thoth, uh, whom they who who is later going to be equated with um, Hermes and Mercury. Um, they obviously recognized that their writing was very ancient. And they use their writing to document royal history. So, like, so far, so good. Right. Um, and one of the sort of archetypal examples of an ancient Egyptian historian drawing on these sources is a guy named Manitho. So Manitho was active in the early 3rd century BCE. Uh, he's said to have been a priest in Heliopolis. Uh, and as such, he would in theory have had privileged access to these Egyptian language historical sources. But he writes in Greek for a Greek speaking audience. Uh, his history of Egypt was supposedly written for Ptolemy II. And in it, he establishes this chronological framework for Egyptian history that stretches back many thousands of years, all the way into the mythical past right, to the, the time when the gods ruled on the earth. And interestingly, he doesn't seem to have been terribly popular in his own time, but he really comes to prominence in late antiquity 
when we get this big effort to establish a chronology of world civilizations from the time of creation. And this is really an ideological and an apologetic project. Christian authors were trying to use this chronology to show, they're weaponizing chronology, to show that the Hebrew patriarchs and the prophets predated the emergence of the Greek philosophical tradition. Because they really want to cast the Greeks as this upstart young civilization and to establish the authority of their own tradition through their link to the Hebrews. But this is complicated by the fact that different societies used different calendrical systems, right? They're all calculating time differently. Right. And, and they're, for the most part, not starting from a fixed point, a year zero. Uh, certainly in the case of the Egyptians, a lot of the Near Eastern chronological systems are similar. The calendar resets when a new ruler comes to the throne. So it's a, it's a complicated process. And it's further complicated by the fact that the Christian authors were working within a pretty rigid chronological framework of their own based on efforts to calculate the age of the earth on the basis of the generations outlined in scripture. So all of the so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so sections, if you calculate those out, you get a date for creation around 5500 BCE. And so interesting things start to happen when this tradition is confronted with Egyptian and Babylonian sources that claim to extend human history far deeper into the past than, than the biblical tradition would allow. And so in the book, I looked at um, two different cases where this encounter plays out. Uh, the Chronicle of Eusebius from the early 4th century and a couple chapters from Augustine's City of God from the early 5th century. And so both of these guys were working within the system of biblical chronology that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Eusebius was explicitly trying to create a system of world chronology, and Augustine was was dealing with this kind of tangentially uh, in the context of his, his larger historical project in the City of God. Both of them were aware of the supposed antiquity of the Egyptian historical records, but they address this issue in very different ways. And so Eusebius makes extensive use of Manetho. Um, he's read Diodorus, he quotes Diodorus saying, oh yeah, those Egyptians, they're really good record keepers. Um, I think it's appropriate to include Manetho because he seems pretty reliable. And when Manetho's kind of expansive chronology conflicts with Eusebius's biblical one, Eusebius tries to explain this. Um, he says, well, maybe what Manetho calls years were actually months. Yes. Uh, that, was, that was an idea that was already in circulation. Diodorus had already argued that. Um, he says, maybe some of the kings were ruling simultaneously. He's got all these yeah. more or less credible, often less credible explanations for, for this divergence. And he gets a lot of criticism from this, criticism for this from later Christian chronographers. But I don't know. I'm kind of sympathetic. He's trying to be a good historian. He's trying to use a wide array of sources. He's trying to explain the discrepancies. And he actually says, you know, maybe we'll never be able to reconcile these things, yeah. which is kind yeah. of a refreshingly humble take on this. Yes. And then we have Augustine, who is 
much less willing to compromise, much less willing to accept the authority of Egyptian or Near Eastern historiographic sources. So he was aware of Eusebius's work. Uh, he was aware that Eusebius himself had used these sources. But when there's a discrepancy, um, his default is to go with the option that is closest to the biblical chronology that he prefers. And in his view, the authority of scripture takes absolute precedence over the authority that might be vested in another society's historical records. Um, he's, he's adamant that biblical chronology should not be corrected by reference to these outside sources. And he has some really sharp things to say about the Egyptians' claims to the tremendous antiquity of their civilization. Um, he, he calls some of these sources, wholly untruthful writings, which purport to contain the history of many thousands of years of time. Um, and this is an idea that he absolutely wants to debunk. Yeah. And one of the ways that he does that is by offering an alternative tradition for the invention of hieroglyphs. So he's aware that the majority view says hieroglyphs were invented by the god Thoth, gifted to mankind, deep in, in the mythological past. So he knows that tradition, but he brings forward a, a variation on that story that he prefers. And this story says that hieroglyphs were actually invented by Isis, whom, who he understands as a human, um, identified with the Greek Io, daughter of Inachus. And he thinks she lived about 2000 years earlier. And so on this basis, he says, well, we can't possibly think that the Egyptians have a written tradition dating back, you know, 100,000 years, like some of the sources claim, because he says, quote, in what books could they have collected so much information, who learned the art of writing from their teacher Isis, not much more than 2000 years ago. Right. Yeah, the Egyptians were useful to push back against the Greeks but a bit too useful. So then you had to push back against the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. So they don't disrupt your biblical chronology. And by the way, I mean, you mentioned Manitho. Manitho is one of the most important authors that many in the audience will not have heard of, but he's tremendously important. Um, I think it was he who devised the system of dynasties that is mm -hmm. still used um, in modern scholarship for Egyptian history. And you're exactly right. He doesn't seem to have found many readers in his own time or even for centuries afterwards, except when it came to this Jewish Christian apologetic against the Greeks. So Josephus used him and then later. In other words, it's precisely late antique Christian authors to whom we owe the survival of whatever we have, mm -hmm. precisely because he was useful in this context. Now, I want to make sure that we also talk about like engaging with hieroglyphics in practice. Um, so these are like authors like Eusebius and Augustine are, are you know, doing their philosophies of history or you know, whatever. Uh, but Egypt was also very famous for Christians who, uh, you know, lived in the tombs of the pharaohs or, you know, made secondary or tertiary or whatever use of ancient Egyptian monuments that were covered in hieroglyphic inscriptions. So can you tell us some stories about how they interacted with these? Uh, what did they think those were? And, you know, did they did they did they try to 
you know, uh, destroy them, deface them, or or treasure them, or reinterpret them in Christian ways. So, what do our sources tell us about that? This question makes me so happy because this is not only where this project starts. This is really where my whole research trajectory started back in college. And um, so I have to give a shout out to my first teacher of Coptic, the late Robert Rittner. Um, I had class with him in in my undergrad. And once we got through the introductory grammar book, all of the texts that he had us read were stories about monks going in and trashing temples. And this is obviously a widespread literary motif. Um, in in late antiquity, you think about um, Libanius's uh, for the temples, where he mm-hmm. kind of caricatures this yeah. uh, this phenomenon, and the the plethora of these um, of these stories led to a very longstanding belief among historians that Christian ascetics and church leaders could only have had a negative view of the ancient temples, of the cult images, of the hieroglyphic inscriptions on those walls. And that is an assumption that I really try to challenge in the book. Um, In fact, they did a lot less smashing than the literary sources would have us believe. But I want to start with the temple smasher, first and foremost. Uh, Shanuta of Atripa. (laughs) Shanuta is probably going to be familiar to some listeners. Uh, he was a monastic leader in Upper Egypt, active uh, from the mid to late 4th century into the mid 5th century CE. And throughout his career, he cultivated a reputation as an anti-pagan activist. It's a little unclear how many pagans there still were in Upper Egypt for him to act against, but this is um, a huge part of his self-presentation. And so one of the texts that I encountered in that first Coptic class is a fragmentary sermon that was published in uh, the early 80s with the fabulous title, A Monastic Invective on Egyptian Hieroglyphs. And in it, Shanuta lays out uh, a project for transforming a local temple into a church. And we know that it's an Egyptian temple because he talks about the decorative program. He talks about the hieroglyphic inscriptions on the walls of the temple, which he characterizes in extremely vivid terms. He says, these are laws for murdering men's souls, uh, written in blood and not in ink alone. So, you know, he's starting out strong right there. And as he describes the inscriptions, he puts a really heavy emphasis on Uh, the presence of hieroglyphs in the form of animals, birds, reptiles, mammals, all all different sorts of things. And what he wants to see happen is the either the removal or the concealment of these inscriptions. Uh, And they're going to be replaced by what he calls the soul-saving writings of life, that is the scriptures, and by images of Christian uh, saints, primarily. If I could interject, so it was a standard motif in Christian apologetics against Egyptian religion that so Egyptians worship animals Mm -hmm. and therefore whenever they saw animals in Egyptian in in an Egyptian context including in hieroglyphics they thought that this was like core paganism even if 
that's not how the figures are functioning in the script. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Shinuta really takes advantage of that idea. Um, he leans into the notion that these are images, and especially images of animals, uh, rather than seeing them as readable text. Right. right? This this yeah. this word image, Coptic ina, um, occurs over and over and over again. And this allows him to associate the hieroglyphs with the prohibition on graven images. Um <clears throat> From from scripture, uh, it's the the same word is used uh, in in those biblical prohibitions, and so for him, yeah, hieroglyphs are equally as problematic as three dimensional cult images, equally problematic as the worship of sacred animals, um, all these features of traditional Egyptian religion that become um, sort of emblems of what Egypt is for outsiders. So. And yeah, oh, so sorry. tell us about some of the other, um, so the not-so-hostile approach to uh, hieroglyphics. Yeah, so one thing about Shanuta, he's a really loud voice, right? I think he would he would love to hear us say that. He is a loud voice um, in the sense both of what he's saying, but also he is the best attested Coptic author in terms of writings that have survived to the present day. Right. But despite being so loud, he's not in this particular instance, normative, right? So after reading this text and all of these other sort of temple smashing uh, literary works, I expected to find a lot of other voices saying the same thing. And in fact, that's not what I found. This text is unique. And what I found in some of the other sources were more conciliatory, maybe attempts to take hieroglyphic inscriptions and read Christian meaning into them. So one of my favorite examples there is um, set in the patriarchate of another temple smasher, uh, Theophilus of Alexandria, uh, the patriarch in the late fourth century who is allegedly responsible for the destruction of the Serapium, the temple of Serapis in Alexandria. So this text is attributed to his nephew and successor as patriarch, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, uh, who's also a character in the story, uh, but probably written quite a bit later in the 7th or 8th century CE. And it's it's part of a larger uh, group of texts that all relate to uh, Theophilus and Cyril's program of sort of urban Christianization, uh, the building of churches uh, in Alexandria and elsewhere in Egypt. And... So in the story, Theophilus and Cyril are walking out in the countryside and they find an abandoned temple. And it's identified in pretty general terms. It's said to be a temple of Alexander. And it's covered with what the author describes as fantastic images and inscriptions, including what Cyril identifies as three Greek thetas carved on the door lintel. And so he asks... Theophilus, oh, wise one, what, how do you understand these? And Theophilus, we're told, is filled with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and interprets the Thetas as standing for Theos, Theodosius, and Theophilus. Of course so, he would. Of course. God, the emperor, and Theophilus himself. And immediately the temple doors swing open and a stream of gold comes pouring out. Of door. course it did. And you can probably guess what's going to happen next. 
these guys are going to take the gold and build churches with it. And so this is a fabulous text in and of itself, but it gets even more interesting when you think about what these thetas actually might have been. And so Egyptologist Laszlo Kakoshi argued back in the 80s, actually, that what the author of the text refers to as thetas should actually be understood as a genuine Egyptian motif. The three winged sun disks that often appear on temple lintels in the Greco-Roman period. And oftentimes they are um, they are tripled. Uh, earlier Egyptian temples, you get one of them. Greco-Roman temples, you often get three of them. And this reading is actually supported by something that Eusebius says in the preparation for the gospel. Um, he, he actually describes the winged sun disk saying, yeah, the whole thing looks like our theta. Um, <clears throat> so it, it makes sense that, um, that Kakushi is, is on the right track here. And this is such an interesting interpretive strategy because, I mean, it's a Christian appropriation of Egyptian imagery that I think is a really strong contrast to what we saw with Shanuta, because Shanuta says you can't read these things. These are not text, they're images, um, they're mirror images. Mm. Um, and here you've got Theophilus actually taking what is not originally text. He's taking an Egyptian image and turning it into legible text. Right, 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 right. It's, exactly um, and it's, yeah. it's text that confirms him and Cyril as the sort of rightful heirs of the treasure that's squirreled away uh, in, the, in the bowels of the temple. So we've got this idea of translation as a source of power and authority and riches that you can then go and build churches with. Yes, I, I love all the, the, the range of these re reactions. And you have many more such, um, you know, both episodes and kind of interpretive strategies in the book. And, and I hope people, you know, go and read it and, and learn more about it. like the Ankh and the cross and all of the, the all of these stories about these things. And I, I, I should mention something else, too, which is that your training as an Egyptologist and sort of knowing how hieroglyphics actually work, it really pays off in the book. It really does. Because, you know, one could write a similar kind of study of, you know, what Christians are making of this without that background, mm -hmm. just treating it as a, because they don't know. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, you could write it as if, you know, you also don't know. And and it's possible. But I think that your, your deep background in that, it really, really works. Um, because you bring all these other dimensions um, into play in reading these texts and and looking at how these uh, early Christians read them and it anyway I I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank um, you. That that makes me feel like the hours that I spent crying over my hieratic homework were not in vain. Exactly. <laughs> so. exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean the tuxedo parties might have stopped by that point, but uh, you know if they're reading them as thetas, um, yeah, theta was used also in in Coptic by that point, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, okay. So any final thoughts? Uh, th there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I, it's probably best that we bring it to an end here. Any final thoughts for the audience or any like, next projects or whatever you want? Yeah. So I actually wanted to end with something that didn't get very much airtime in the book, uh, which is a single artifact. Uh, it's a ceramic ostracon, a potsherd uh, from Theban tomb 1152. 
So we are in Upper Egypt on the West Bank of Thebes, this vast cemetery area. And this is a piece that was published uh, about 10 years ago by uh, the archaeologists uh, Tomasz Gorecki and Edita Kopp. And what it is, is a fragment of a late Roman transport amphora. So a late Roman wine jug. Um, it's a type that is that was um, widely in use in the Theban region in the 6th and 7th centuries CE. So these are a dime a dozen. What makes this one really cool is that it has a handful of hieroglyphic signs scratched into it. Wow. So TT-152 was used as a Christian hermitage at this time. And so Gorecki and Kopp argue that the person who wrote these hieroglyphs was almost certainly a Christian, either the tomb-dwelling monk himself or a local Christian villager bringing him you know, food and water. So the hieroglyphs can't be read as continuous text. I mean, that would be really amazing. But they are a collection of random but genuine hieroglyphic signs. And the um, the archaeologists suggest that these were probably written from memory, something that the creator had seen walking around the Theban necropolis where hieroglyphic inscriptions would still have been part of the visual environment, and that he got home and decided to try and reproduce these on his little piece of pottery. And so it's a piece that raises a lot of questions. There's still a lot that we don't know about it, obviously. But I love it because it is such a beautifully sort of tangible, material refutation of the idea that late antique Christians were either totally hostile to the hieroglyphic tradition or that they were totally oblivious to it. And those are ideas that I was really trying to challenge in this project. And I think this little artifact captures that challenge in just a, a wonderfully evocative way. It does. Or the alternative that they were used only for mystical interpretation and, you know, by by scholars and philosophers and so mm -hmm. on. Um, and it's also interesting that a lot of scripts get used this way. Um, we have from, you know, later Byzantine centuries, pseudo-Kufic. Um, Ooh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So in, in objects, but also on the sides of churches where they would mm -hmm. arrange tiles to make, I mean, to, to simplify, like pseudo-Arabic script. Oh, that's all kinds of fascinating. Love it. And this has been done with Greeks so many times. <laughs> Where, you know, you, you you anyway, Greek has been used to in various contexts to evoke various kinds of authority, you know. I, I often get sent these things. Hey, can you read this? Uh, well, <laughs> it's either pseudo-Greek or it's Coptic. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway. Um cool. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and also for using your Egyptological, mystical, magical knowledge to talk about late antiquity, too. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It was a real pleasure. I look forward to your next project and uh, we'll stay in touch. Take care. Awesome.